We're blessed to have them. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to the book of Ephesians. We're going to work in chapter 2 this morning. We're in those first 10 verses, and um, we're working through those, and this chapter 2 is so relevant for today. Um, so relevant, uh, and I hope you see that as we go forward this morning. It says so much about our culture today. It, it tells us really what divides men, and uh, it tells us about evil. It tells us that Christ is uh, building a building, and that building is his church, and he is the cornerstone. Uh, chapter 2 is such a rich chapter. It is the only chapter that could follow chapter 1 uh, with the depth and, and breadth of the truth and the doctrine that God has given us in the book of Ephesians. If you have that, we'll read the first 10 verses. We're staying in there yet this morning, and we'll see what the Lord has for us next week, but uh, we're working in there this morning. So let's read verses 1 through 10. We'll pray, and uh, I just, before we read this, I want to remind each of you that today, just following service, we will have our new membership vote, but just after that, um, that'll let you get, if you're a visitor here this morning, that'll let you get in line for the Thanksgiving dinner before all the members, so you'll actually be lucky, but I would invite you to stay with us for dinner just following the service this morning and following that vote. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul writes this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Amazing words, right? He called them a bunch of dead people, or that's what their former position was. You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're all in the same boat is what Paul's saying. Sin struck us all. Verse 4, the adversity. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead men and women in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not just any good works, right? The good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come this morning. These words in application to our heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts this morning, Father. Jesus is the solution for all of man's problems. Jesus, crucified on the cross of Calvary for our sins, buried and on the third day risen to life for our life. He is the solution. He is the source of our good works. He it is who, through your work in our lives, plucked us from the pits of very pits of hell and death and brought us and seated us in heavenly places. Father, because of your mercy and love, this passage is not difficult. This, these words are not 
uh, beyond understanding what you have done in Christ in bringing us from death to life so that we can perform good works in this place. Thank you for that, Father. Speak to your people directly this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You might work your way to John chapter 8 because we're going to spend some time in there this morning as well. Forgive me already because I'm, my throat is really dry. Somebody made me work outside all day yesterday. This preacher hasn't done that in a long time. His name's Frank Hintz. You can see him after the service. Uh, no, we had a great time, and I, I appreciate that. I want to tell you this morning, beloved, we live in a post-Christian nation. We were caught off guard this week. Many, I think, probably were. We live in a moment when what God declares evil, the culture declares is good. And anyone who disagrees with this culture is declared evil. God writes a lot about that in his scriptures. It shouldn't be any surprise to us, but yet I think that when we look at today's culture, a lot of us are really surprised with the amount of evil we see, are we not? Sickening. (laughs) He writes in Isaiah 5.20, probably the most popular passage for this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put dark for light and light for dark. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. That's the culture that we live in. They're exchanging what God calls good for what they call good. And there's a big difference between those two things. Because abortion is never good. Homosexuality is never good. Divorce is not good. Sexual promiscuity is not good. But yet this culture calls all those things good, what God calls evil. The moral corruption of our society and its bent on death is beyond the pale. That old idiom fits well, Hill. It's beyond the pale. It's offensive. It's unacceptable. It's morally reprehensible. I'm going to give you some bad news this morning because we're going to work up to the good. It's not really my bad news. It is just my assessment or the right assessment, I think, of this culture and what we see today. And I want you to understand that this one more election deemed the most important election of our lifetime. How many times have we heard that? How many most important elections of our lifetime can we have and be disappointed in this? It's come and gone, and the results continue to disappoint all of those that would put their hopes in politicians and government. I'm not a hater of government. We need that. I just understand that it doesn't work without a moral electorate. I think we all do. There are really two truths here at play today, two that I want to work towards. The one, law will never make a man moral. It's only there as a deterrent and punishment. The greatest illustration I have of that is one I've been using for 20-some years. When I was a kid, you walked down the halls of our school uh, and the classrooms were on each side, or in the locker rooms lined all those halls, didn't they? We're all familiar with that. And on each one of those lockers was what? Yeah, a master lock, a little combination lock, right? And everybody had to get a combination lock. It was like a lot of fun when I was younger, right? And then I found out it kept my books from me, so I just forgot the combination all the time. But once in a while, a kid would forget that combination lock. And why did we put them on there to begin with, right? To keep people out of our locker, to keep people away from our stuff. So we put the combination lock on there, and some kids would forget it. And do you know what happened? 
the janitor would come with these big water pump pliers. That's a cool term, isn't it? If you're a plumber, you know what water pump pliers. He had a water pump pliers and a ball-peen hammer. He'd grab that lock with those pliers and smack it one time with that ball-peen hammer, and that lock popped right open. And that's indicative of how the law works. That lock was there not to stop from somebody that really wanted in because anybody that had a hammer and a ball-peen a ball peen hammer and a pair of water pump pliers could get in that locker. But it was to stop an innocent person from going too far and to let us know when punishment was to be meted out. That's what the law is. In fact, it's just the opposite. The less moral man is, the more restraint he will require by the law. The greater the lock's got to be. We wouldn't have lockers. We would have safes, maybe, to keep our books in. That's the first point about the law. The second The change sought in our communities will never come through elections, but only in reformation and turning back to God's word. And here's something that should make you tremble. This election shows you just how non-Christian our nation has become. In my lifetime, we went from majority to minority. And in the last 10 years, that has sped up tenfold, the dive towards the culture we're living in. John Adams, our first vice president and second president of the United States from 1797 to 1801, wrote these familiar words. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and a religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. All those things mesh. We need a moral electorate for our nation to work out. Beloved Christians, we must quit hoping in elections and must get real about the nature of evil. At some point, it has to be about saying, I'm going to lay down my life, my hopes, and my dreams and give it all away. I will sacrifice to make this, di- make this different, to save this nation. We must understand evil, and we must be ready to sacrifice, especially the church. We live in desperate times in America. World wars, civil wars, cold wars, drug wars... They've all come and gone. I love our vets, and we celebrate them, absolutely. But they uniquely, and we should study them more because they uniquely understood evil and the sacrifice that's required to defeat evil. We would do well to understand their heroic efforts this morning as the church. I believe we are challenged today with some of the same choices to defeat evil with good and be willing to sacrifice all that you have to accomplish this mission. We're in the late stages of this, guys. I don't think there's a person here this morning who will disagree with me on this one truth, and that is that there's not one parent or grandparent here that didn't wish they wouldn't have taught their kids better about Jesus and what truth is. Is there a one of you that feels like you did well enough at that, right? We all have some regret in that way. Every one of us carries that burden no matter how small. Every one of us. Well, some will be quick to say, you know, well, raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord uh, doesn't assure their salvation. And I agree with them. It doesn't necessarily assure their salvation, but neither does sending them to the world for their education. The atheist production model that is our public school system. Which side of caution would you rather err on this morning? Beloved, why is there so much bad, and how do we turn it to good, is my ultimate question. Why is there so much bad, and how do we turn it to good, and how does this passage help us 
grasp that truth this morning. Paul gives us a foundational truth here in this second chapter that we easily skirt by in this passage. I said a little bit about it last week. It was just gnawing at me internally. When Paul speaks about the fact that we were all children of the devil before God plucked us from the oven, we have to understand that. We have to understand how that plays out today. We can't just skip by this because every word Jesus said when he was being tempted there in the wilderness, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God, every word of Scripture is for our upbuilding and for truth. We skirt by these passages then to our own detriment. They hold truth and grace that brings life and hope in this place. Even the most difficult and convicting ones, in fact, those are the ones we need to look more specifically at. And it's the case here with Ephesians 2.2 where Paul reminds believers of all time that we were once children of the devil. Let that sink in for just a minute. I think it's easy to say we were once that and God snatched us away from that and just leave that part there. But understanding what took place when we were children of the devil and what truly is in our hearts, I think we begin to understand evil more specifically. We were once children of the devil, beloved. I know that's no longer our position. We can't go back, but that is the world's position. That is all the lost that are around us. We were once children of the devil, now believers who have placed all their trust in Christ alone because God illuminated our minds and he converted our dirty hearts with his spirit to recognize his glorious grace. And that is he is holy. We are sinners and need a salvation from him. He did this. That's why we get this powerful adversity in verse 4. But God, but God, because of his mercy and his love, his uniting us with Christ and rising us, we went from the lowest of lows to being raised up with heaven in Christ to the highest of highs. But as I said, there's much more truth here in this passage. Because you'll see at the beginning of this passage, he reminds us who we are. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, who we were. He says, but God in his mercy and his love, he plucked us from out of death, united us with Christ. He set us in the heavenly places with Christ. But look what it says there in verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He took us from the worst of works to the greatest of works. Do you see that? He took us from doing evil to doing good. So there's hope for our culture, and that is the but God, the gospel. And that's the Christian truth here in this passage. There's a, there's a heck of a theology of evil, though, also here, and that's where I want to be for just a moment. We can't just leave it and say, that's it. God took us out of it. We don't have to look back, because that looking back to where we were explains all the lost folks today. Because there remains a whole lost world out there that are still dead in their trespasses and sins. And one of the unique things that I think a lot of Christians understood <clears throat> from this election specifically is that there's a majority of lost persons in our United States and a minority. Because I think that we all thought that we were people that were thinking this is why people will vote. This is the reason they'll vote the way that they should vote. There was a whole other group of people, as large or larger, promoting abortion and saying, this is why people will vote. 
No, it's, it's uh, based on their income. This is why people vote. No, it's based on abortion. This is why people vote. You see those narrow lines and margins that we're playing with here this morning? There's a whole group of people growing larger that are in their trespasses and sins that are still totally under the control of the prince of the power of the air. And that's going to help you explain evil this morning. Who is he? He's the devil. He's the accuser of the brother, and he is Satan, the chiefest of the fallen angels, Scripture tells us, the one that's hell-bent on corruption and deceit in this world. And make no mistake about that, this fallen angel, he is a murderer and a liar from the beginning, and he wants the lost of this world to remain in their sins so that he can carry out his evil desires in this place, he can create chaos in this place, and he'll get the greatest pressure from that because his is the basis of victories. He wants them all dead, ultimately. If you're saved this morning, he's already defeated in your life. But if you're lost in your sins here this morning, his goal is your eternal destruction in hell. Make no mistake about this truth. The Bible is very clear. We're the ones that that bloody those lines, that blur those lines, that look at something and say, well, it's not that evil. They intend good. Paul never says that. There's no middle ground. You're either lost and dead in your sins and a follower of the prince of the power of the air, or but God, he has pulled you out of that, and you're working on doing good works. Works of death, works of life. There's no middle ground. Does it say anywhere that there's a middle ground? It doesn't. I'll save you the time. The grave is this accuser's home. He knows his defeat. He only wants the glory that belongs to God. And if he can drag your pitiful lost soul into the pits of hell, he and his minions will soon celebrate at your eternal damnation. Why do I tell you that this morning? Here's the truth. Here's the proposition. Christians under it drastically underestimate evil and the destruction evil wants to work in the world today. And because they wholly underestimate it, they allow it license to corrupt others and grow. How many of you remember what Bill Clinton said in 1992? And I, reading uh, recounts of this this week, this is 30 years ago, by the way, 1992. He said these famous words, and, and, and the liberal um, intelligentsia and their praise for him in this one little speech, they all fawned over his words about abortion. Remember what he said? He called for abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. You guys remember those words? I think a lot of people believed him. He was just getting out of a political mess that he'd created some six weeks earlier as governor or six months earlier as governor, where he said he didn't want abortion. But now he was going to be president, and he did have to want abortion because he truly wanted it. But it was all a guise. It was a political trick, really. It was a ruse, a hoax, a a political position that was took because it was advantageous to his election. It was evil to the core, though. Because when he uttered those words, safe, legal, and rare, what he meant was until birth for any reason, and now... Fifty years later, after Roe v. Wade, 65 million babies have been slaughtered in the womb. It was anything but rare. It was pure evil then, and it's pure evil today. And for us to misunderstand it is wholly wrong. This thinking, this equivocation that's often the case for Christians, we're trying to be fair, we're trying to be empathetic, but it 
It just allows more evil in this world. This equivocation is pure evil. And this is what Paul is teaching us here in this passage. Believers are saved, but the lost, the unbelievers, remain in the power and the corruption of the devil, and they do his bidding. But Jesus had a theology of this evil. And when I recount these words for you, it's going to punch you in the gut because Jesus had a true theology of evil that we need to carry with us today. Let's turn to Jesus' words. Turn to John chapter 8, if you have your scriptures with you. I'm just going to kind of walk down through these things. John chapter 8, we're going to begin in the verse 23. Set a little context here for you while you're turning. We're going to go through the end of the chapter, verse 47. Shouldn't take but a couple hours. Don't laugh at me. <laughs> Jesus is setting a theology of evil. And it's very parallel to what Paul's saying. Because in Jesus' understanding, I want you to understand that we can't trifle with evil. And we need to be the first ones, the church does, because we have the truth of God's word in our hearts, through the Holy Spirit, through the work and power of God's word, alive in us. We're the ones that call out evil. We're the ones that need to recognize it and understand it better than anybody else. Because Jesus, Jesus is the solution. Jesus crucified that evil that was committed on him in the first century so that his blood would cover our sins and that he was raised to life on the third day. Don't miss this. This is Jesus. Verse 23. He said to them, you are from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. What is he saying? He's saying to the Pharisees who want to kill him, listen, they tried to kill him for three years. The only reason they never got that done was because God was stopping them during his time in ministry, was it not? That didn't make them any less evil. That didn't make them any less bent on destroying Jesus. This is Jesus, by the way, who healed everybody he came in contact with. He had compassion on those. He made the blind to see, made the lame to walk. He made the deaf to hear. This Jesus is the one they wanted to kill. And this Jesus is the one that says to them, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. Now, you could translate that a little bit differently and read chapter 2, verse 2 of what Paul's saying. Everyone is a, is a member of Satan's party until God pulls them out of it, until they're saved by the gospel. And they're able to commit the same evils that Jesus is talking about here. Verse 23, don't miss this. He says it to the Pharisees, you're from below, I'm from above. This statement in and of itself is a theology of evil. Why it exists and why, when it goes unchallenged by people who know truth, it thrives amidst us. We live in a post-Christian world where evil thrives, beloved, the Pharisees were just following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. They believed they were completely right. Go on down, jump down to verse 31. Let's look at a few of these verses. Jesus goes on with this, and as he does, it just drives deeper into our hearts as Christian believers, as those who know Christ personally, that this evil is not going to be changed, that it has to be spoken to with truth. They didn't think they were slaves to evil. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
In other words, you can see the scene. Jesus is teaching. There are some that have believed in him, but there's this great horde that does not. And what he is saying to the ones who have believed, if you believe in my word and abide in me, you're free. You're free from the powers of hell. You're free from Satan. You're free from death. You're free from sin, right? That's what the truth tells us. It tells us who we truly are and our need in Jesus Christ. Verse 33, and they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? In their estimation of the whole situation, they didn't need to be freed from anything because they were right. Jesus was saying, you're doing evil works. They were saying, no, we're not. We're going to kill you for saying that. Do you see how evil works? You see, Jesus is not toying with it at all here. Jesus answered them, verse 34, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know, he says, that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. He doesn't say, you seek to do me harm. He doesn't say, you're trying to keep my ministry from being as fruitful as it can be. He comes right out and looks at him straight in the face, says, you're of the devil. You're seeking to kill me. That's the evil within you. You need to be set free by the truth. They didn't want to believe the truth. They, wanted, they didn't think they needed the truth. There's the real point of it. They did not believe they needed the truth because they thought they were right. They thought evil was good and good was evil. Do you see that? Jesus says, verse 38, I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you heard from your father. This must have fell on their ears like an atomic bomb. What? What are you talking about, Jesus? And then he goes on to tell them plainly, begin in verse 39. Do you see it there? They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. This is what evil people do. Why did the Pharisees believe that Jesus was so wrong, that he deserved death? Why did they not understand? Why did they act this way? Why did they not believe they were wrong? Because they were children of the devil. They couldn't hear his truth. And they were working their evil in that time. This is not what Abraham did. Verse 41, you're doing the works your father did. They said to him, they're just... They've got to be completely set back now. What is he talking about? Their answers show their lack of understanding, their total disregard that they may even be a little bit wrong and need to hear this truth. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We've got one father. That father is even God. Jesus said to them, if, you were the, <clears throat> if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he has sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you can't bear to hear the truth. Oh, Oof. that's convicting of our current situation, isn't it? Huh? Abortion is evil. No, it's a choice. It's reproductive care. No, it's evil. It's tearing a child limb from limb in the womb. No, it should be choice. It's good to have more choices. Do you see that? There's something stopping their ears. 
Instead of cowering and getting lower, we should exclaim the truth even louder. No, it is murder. God says, thou shall not kill. Why can you not hear me? Because you're of your father, the devil. That's what Jesus is getting ready to say. Verse 44, you're of your father, the devil, and your will, your very heart, your very modus operandi, your MO is to do your father's desires. Beloved, if you don't believe that about the lost people of this world today, I don't know if I'm going to say this out loud. You're part of the problem. You're not taking evil seriously. He was a murderer. Listen to Jesus' words. Man, he's not mincing any of them. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. None. Oh, they mean well. The Pharisees never meant well. Jesus never said, well, they mean well. Let's give them a second chance. Let's send our children to them in high school. Let's elect them as leaders over us. Uh, uh. Jesus said, your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. It's just not there. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Beloved, here is the conviction for the Christian. Evil cannot be compromised with. It either hears the truth and repents, or it must be, eventually will be, put down. Jesus didn't make a deal with the devil. He clearly articulated their coming destruction, and so should we as Christians. We've got the hope of the gospel. Jesus is the solution, right? He's the solution for us. He's the solution for the whole world. His, him being crucified for our sins and then raised for our life. We cannot equivocate with this. That's what Jesus is telling them. He's telling them plainly here who they are and what they're from. Scripture was warn us again and again and time over. Be sober, be sober-minded, be watchful for your adversary, the devil. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. That is his life. That is his will. That is what he most wants to do is to catch you in your sin and drag you into those pits to keep you there. Resist him, Scripture says, firm in your faith. Why do so many Christians equivocate? Well, let me tell you this. Satan's not an easy target. We see some of the people that get elected, and I look at them, I go, well, you know, that, uh, they can't even put two sentences together. How can this be? How can they be the mastermind of this cabal that we're seeing play out in front of us every day? How can they be the mastermind of this evil? Well, it's simple. There's a simple biblical answer to that. It's because they're of their father, the devil, and they're just doing his bidding. He is the mastermind. What did it say in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1? The Lord had created the most subtle beast of the field. He's subtle. He told Eve, <clears throat> he didn't come as some, you know, whenever you see the devil on TV, he usually comes as some horned thing that everybody would be afraid of. He didn't approach Eve like that. He approached Eve in the garden as reasonable, as fair, as empathetic. <laughs> right? 
And those words that we play out every day. Well, we should give them the choice. That's reproductive care. And pretty soon you're believing what is evil might be good. Why would God keep that one thing from us in that garden? The tree of the fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why would he do that? Wait a minute. He's the same God that gives us life, that provides everything for us. And we can eat of every tree except that one tree. What's he hiding from us? That's how subtle Satan is, and we see it in our politics today. But, beloved, we can't be that subtle about evil as Christians. We cannot be. He uses subtle arguments with willful idiots. 2 Corinthians eleven twelve through 15 reminds us of that. Paul says, in what I am doing, I will continue to do. You might remember that the false apostles were there at Corinth, and Paul was going to root them out. He was going to tell them who they were and get them out of that church. He said, I'm going to continue to do this in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work the same terms we do. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm going to show them as the liars they are because I'm going to speak the truth, and the truth does what it always does. It convicts those, and it shows the liar. Shows the one that is the follower of Satan. Verse 13, for such men, Paul says, are false apostles. They're deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And there is that same modus operandi. I think we see it in our politics and a lot of our politicians. They disguise themselves to be whoever they need to be at the time so that they can get in and follow through with the evil that they were planning to do all along. You're going overboard, Pastor. You're... No, I don't believe so. Paul says, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it should be to no surprise if his servants do the same as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond, he says, to their deeds. Jesus reminds us that he sends us out as sheep among the wolves. How do we overcome this? What is the right answer with this? Let's look back at Ephesians. Just turn back there momentarily with me. Ephesians chapter 2. The answer to this, of course, is the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul goes and he tells us, You're dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were followers of Satan. Just like Jesus was saying there to those Pharisees in the first century. But we get to verse 4 and it says that adversity, that magnificent adversity. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's, he saved us, beloved. He sent his son to die on Calvary. He has sent his Holy Spirit to work in the words of the gospel. And in his mercy and in his love, he plucks us out of death and places us unites us with his son, Jesus Christ, and that just means that he allows Christ's righteous works to be on my account and my sins to go on Jesus' account, and he paid for my sins so that I could have his righteousness, and then he sets me off to do something. What is that? You see it in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Is he saying that we can overcome evil with good? Is that not what Jesus did in the gospel, beloved? Is that not what the church is called today to do? 
and make no mistake about this in just the moments that we have left, I'm asking you to fight this evil with me. I want you to fight evil. I want to raise up a generation of children and young men and women who know the Lord will fight evil tooth and nail and will stand against Satan and his lies, fueled evil culture, and raise their children and flourish and seek the true, the good, and the beautiful. I want that for my children. I want that for your children. And I want it for every child that we can affect in Pennsville, New Jersey, and in the greater South Jersey, the other. Beloved, we have weapons that we can use against Satan and his schemes. It is if we have the will to use them. And I'm calling on you to sacrifice because I believe the level of the fight is much like some of the men that went off to World War II. We're not going to, in 10 years, I don't know that you recognize this nation. But this is what I have hope in. Good will overcome evil. That's the promise of scripture, that good will overcome evil. There is an army of Christian-educated schools rising up in the United States. An army of them that are teaching classical Christianity and training children to stand against the evil that they see today and to flourish in the midst of this evil generation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, even our government. We destroy arguments and every lost opinion that was raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We have weapons, beloved. Turn to chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians and let's just read what those weapons are. He enumerates them as we begin in the 10th verse of chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and put, the strength, put on the strength of his might. And that's what I say to each of you this morning. Get ready to sacrifice. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and let's go fight. Let's stand up to the evil. Let's call it out. Let's look it square in the face and tell it what it truly is. Because when we stand against it, it will stand down. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We have victory over the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That's why I'm not calling out specifically one person this morning. Corruption is widespread. Same corruption was in me before God saved me, but it's Satan and his demon horde that we're fighting. And it's the people who are willingly doing his bidding that need to be called out. The truth needs to be spoke. He says how to do that, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. What is that armor? Take it up so that you'll be able to stand in the evil day. Today's the evil day. This is the evil time. I truly believe this, beloved. If we don't stand up and fight like the men that went before us, men and women that have gone before us, we won't recognize our nation in 10 more years. I truly believe that. I truly believe it's the church and the younger generation coming behind us that will be trained, that will stand. 
And having done all to stand firm, he says, stand therefore, verse 14, having felsened on the belt of truth. That belt of truth is the truth of God. You need to know that word. You need to feast on that word. You need to live by that word. You need to hide that word in your heart. You need to live that word, speak that word, preach that word. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Stand. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, that means you live the life. You won't be perfect. None of us are. God doesn't expect that from you. But he does expect you to follow the law and to be righteous as possible. That's what the word does, by the way. It makes us more righteous. It sanctifies us. Verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, That is the love and mercy that God gave to us so that we could do good works. We come out with the gospel and the truth of God and the word of God, and we love and show mercy to others. Huh? We preach the gospel in great hopes of its working in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. There's going to be darts, especially in the beginning of the battle. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplications. And Paul says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And for me also, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Saints, in Christ Jesus, we are victorious. I know it looks bad. I think it looks so bad because... America's not the Christian nation it used to be. We're well in the minority now. But I also know, because I've read Nehemiah, because I've read multiple other passages in the Old Testament that tell us when we turn back to the Word of God, God turn back, turns back to his people in blessing. We are his people in this place. I'm asking you to sacrifice. God has brought me here to build an army of dangerous children, I believe. Not dangerous the way our culture is dangerous, but danger to the culture that we live in. Right? Because they love God. They seek what is true, good, and beautiful. And they stand up to the culture that lies and kills and deceives. I believe God is doing that very work among us at this very time. The question is, will you join me in this? Will Park Bible Baptist Church join me? Will you sacrifice? Will you give what you have to see this victory through? Do you see the fight on this level? And will you work to fend off the enemy? Will you join me in setting motion a 20-year plan to begin a school, to train children, to go from this place with their sword, with their breastplate of righteousness, and with the gospel of peace? To turn a nation, a once great nation, back to the Lord. I truly believe, beloved, this is why God brought Liz and I here. Those doors are already beginning to open. Will you go with us? Will you fight that fight?
Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to a close this morning, I love this group of people so much. There's no mistake uh, what you've done in bringing us to Pennsville, New Jersey, to Park Bible Baptist Church. Father, there's no mistake when we look into our culture that it's hurt, lost, and dying. It needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. It needs to know that love, that mercy that plucked us up out of the well of death and set us on the solid rock so that we could do good works. Oh, Lord, what gift you've given us in your grace. It was not of our works, but yours and yours alone. And, Father, you're not done. There's so much good to give. There's so many people that need to hear about the truth in your Son. And there's so many more lives to be saved for the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope we have in the gospel. We see the bad around us, but we don't lose heart because the gospel is greater, because your plan is greater, because Christ died and is risen on the third day. We have hope. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now we turn to our time.